When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's what I like to tell kids around the country. You don't have to be the most courageous person on earth. You can just use your little bit of courage, your tiny bit, and you'll be amazed what could happen. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus Slate's podcast about the court and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover many, if not most, of those things for Slate. Um, We've been spending this summer with some of our favorite books and some of our favorite people that have connections to the Supreme Court. And this week, we wanted to share an interview that I did with Mary Beth Tinker, uh, the famous armband-wearing student protester whose 60s-era lawsuit became the hallmark litigation around student protest and speech. And I think that because some of the listeners here are under the age of 18 and heading back to school in the next couple of days and weeks, we thought this might be a really nice time to revisit questions of what can you say in a school protest? So here we are. Let me tell you about Mary Beth Tinker. In December of 1965, a group of students, 65, long time ago, a group of students in Des Moines wanted to show their support for a truce that had been proposed in the Vietnam War. They decided to wear black armbands to school, and on December 16th, Mary Beth Tinker and Christopher Eckhart wore their armbands to school, and they were sent home. The students sued the school district for violating their right of free expression. The district court dismissed the case and said the school district's actions were totally reasonable. The U.S. uh, Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit agreed with them. So that's two losses for Mary Beth Tinker. But in February of 1969, in a 7-2 to decision, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that students do not, quote, shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate, end quote. It was a landmark decision for the first time the justices ruled that the First Amendment applied to public schools and that school officials could not censor student speech unless it was really disruptive. Because wearing a black armband was not disruptive, the court ruled that the First Amendment protected the right of Mary Beth Tinker and her co-students to wear them. Later on in the show, we're going to talk to Professor Jeffrey Stone. He teaches constitutional law at the University of Chicago, has authored numerous books and articles and amicus briefs, and thinks as hard about these free speech and school issues as pretty much anyone I know. But first, let's listen to Mary Beth Tinker talking about speech, student protest, and schools just in time for the new school year. Can you can you talk a little bit about, I think even before we dive into your case, I think we should talk a little bit about, you've spoken in the past about your own childhood, your parents, uh, their faith, and how you sort of came up. Uh, you know, you didn't wake up one day in 1965 and say, you know, I'm going to protest. This was the way you lived your life. It was the message you got at home, right? Absolutely. We were raised in Iowa in mighty times 
when there was so much going on around racial justice and the war in Vietnam and uh, the environment, the environmental movement really kicked off during those times. The nuclear threat, we were taught how to prepare for nuclear war by jumping under our desks. And so us kids, you know, started to wonder about how the adults were were running things, and it didn't look too good um, very often. But my dad was a Methodist preacher, and he believed uh, they. My, he and my mother followed the social gospel, which basically means that you put your faith into action on earth. Don't wait for heaven. Get right, get started right away. And so that's what they did. So they got involved with the civil rights movement, and they ended up going to Mississippi for Mississippi Freedom Summer. Came home on my 12th birthday and told us kids stories about what had happened there and how Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman had been murdered by the Ku Klux Klan and and how they met Fannie Lou Hamer and, and the house they were staying in was shot at by the Klan and, and all of these stories. And so those were our examples, our, our parents. And also we had examples of children standing up and speaking up, kids like those in the Birmingham Children's Crusade, 1963, where uh, – you know, little kids, 9, 10, 12, 15 years old, or almost 2,000 kids that year were arrested in Birmingham while Martin Luther King was in jail there writing his famous letter. And we saw these kids on TV, and they, they really inspired us. They, I, I tell kids today that they were kind of like the Black Lives Matter of 1963. Mary Beth, I, I think it's really tempting to believe that 10, 11, 12-year-old kids don't actually have political opinions, that they, you know, they just mouth what their parents have told them, that they don't really understand things. And I, I, I want to hear your just reflections, your memories on the extent to which this was deeply felt for you and for your brother and for your friend. This was not, you know, my parents are, are strapping a black armband around me so that I can be a, a prop uh, in a war protest, right? This this kind of has this genesis in you, correct? Oh, definitely. We saw the news on TV about the war in Vietnam that was building up and uh, Actually, the same day in 1964, August 4th, when the FBI discovered the bodies of Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman, who had been murdered by the Ku Klux Klan, that was the day that off the Gulf of Tonkin, a U.S. Navy ship claimed that it had been attacked. And it probably wasn't attacked, but it didn't stop the U.S. Congress then from really escalating the Vietnam War. So our story is really also a story of journalism because we would watch the news and it was so powerful for us kids as we came home from school and were cooking dinner. And we would see people like Walter Cronkite on the news saying, the body count today in Vietnam is eight. Next day, the body count today is 10. And it, it just went on and on like that. And and there was napalm and children running from their uh, huts in Vietnam that were on fire, these smoking huts. And, and it was really emotional for us kids. Um, a lot of people do say that kids can't possibly know what's going on in politics or in the world. But the thing is that I always remind the kids that, you know what, the adults actually don't understand and know a lot about what's going on in the world as well. So, um, you know, kids come from a sort of fresh perspective with fresh eyes, and their impressions are just as important and should be respected 
just as much. And the U.S. public didn't know about Vietnam. They didn't know where the country was, most of them. Uh, but young people were being called up and drafted from our our neighborhood and our city there, Des Moines, Iowa. So it had a big effect on us. And it's really a children's rights case, um, which is how I've come to see it, because also the 18-year-olds in the neighborhood could be sent off to war, but they couldn't even vote then until age 21. And so it really has to do with children's rights, which I've found is also an international issue, of course. So you, your brother John, your friend Chris Eckhart, and some others decide, I'm going to make a statement about peace. I'm going to go to my school with a black armband, uh, this iconic black uh, armband. What, what was the message, if there was a sort of one-sentence version of what you were trying to say? What was it? It was Christmas time, and so the message was the message of Christmas, and really the message that goes through all faiths, which was peace, love, brotherhood. That was the message we were getting from, uh, you know, so many adults. But then on the TV, we saw, we didn't see those. We saw instead war, killing, and bombing. And so the North Vietnamese had proposed a Christmas truce that year, 1965, Christmas time. I was 13 years old in eighth grade, and Robert Kennedy responded to the, the, the idea of a truce. And he said, yes, we should have a, a truce. Us kids, we heard about that. And kids, I think kids are so logical in so many ways. And so we thought, that's a great idea. We should have a truce this Christmas. The adults, they should stop killing each other and try to you know, use their words or try to talk it out and negotiate, which was what Robert Kennedy was talking about doing. So that was part of our message. And the other part of it was to mourn for the dead in Vietnam on both sides of the war. And that's what made it so controversial. That's one part of what made it so controversial. And were kids around the country doing this? Or were you the first, to your knowledge, who p picks this symbol at this moment to give this message? As I travel around the country now, I'm actually a nurse, and I've worked mostly with kids, uh, with teenagers and children, but I travel now throughout the country speaking about the First Amendment and students' rights and children's rights and, and our case. And as I've done that, I've met others around the country that also wore black armbands during that time period, not exactly on that day maybe, but the black armband goes way back through history as a symbol of mourning, which is why we chose it. And interestingly, also in 1963, when the four girls, um, Denise, Carol, Addie Mae, Cynthia, were burned to death by the Ku Klux Klan in Birmingham, there was a memorial service in Des Moines where we lived, and some people there wore black armbands, and we went to that memorial service. So the idea had been kind of floating around, and other uh, peace groups were also talking about using black armbands, but um, mostly this was, this was a student action. Mary Beth, would you walk us through that day for a moment? You tie on your black armband, you and a bunch of kids go into school, you go into class. What happens? I was really nervous. I was the only student at my school, Warren Harding Junior High School, that was wearing an armband. 
And I stopped to see my friend Connie and uh, at her house on the way, and she said, you better take off that armband. You're going to get in trouble. And I, I told her, but Connie, you know, I want to speak up about the war. So I, I kept going to school, but I was really nervous. And, and nothing much happened in the morning. Uh, mostly people pretty much ignored the armband. But then after lunch, uh, I got teased a little at lunch by some of the boys at the boys' table, but they always teased us girls at the girls' table anyway, so that didn't bother me. But after lunch, I saw my math teacher, my favorite teacher, Mr. Moberly, with a pink slip in his hand standing by the door of math class. And he had spent the day before talking to us a lot about the armband situation and the ban and how we would not be allowed to wear armbands to school. So I knew I was in trouble then. So I took the pink slip and I went down to the office and Mrs. Tarman, the girl's advisor, uh, told me to sit down and she told me that I would have to take off the armband because it was against the rules. Well, then I had a big moral dilemma. So I looked around the office and I looked at Mrs. Tanner and in a great stand of courage, I took off that armband and I gave it to her. And I was kind of proud of myself. I thought, well, at least I did stand up for myself, you know, a little bit. And uh, she's, and that's what I like to tell kids around the country. You don't have to be the most courageous person on earth. You can just use your little bit of courage, your tiny bit, and you'll be amazed what could happen. But she said, you know, you're going to be suspended anyway because it's against the rules. So I took my suspension paper and I went home and uh, I wasn't sure. My father, he had he had told us not to wear the armbands, but my mom, I knew she would understand more why we had done it. And uh, we were, the kids are very persuasive, which we were also. And we convinced my dad. Well, my dad had a weakness for something, the conscience. And so we said, dad, it's our conscience. And so then he understood. What did the school think your armband signaled? I mean, did they understand this was a war protest? Did they think that you were just being bratty little kids? I mean, did they fully comprehend that this was political speech when all this went down? At that time, according to information I've seen since, about 15% of Americans were opposed to the Vietnam War. So it was very unpopular what we were doing. And the administration at the school uh, later in court um, said that it was because of the controversy and because a boy had been killed in the Des Moines schools. And so they were afraid that, you know, it would it would be uh, something that the family of that boy would feel very badly about. And also the controversy was really, I think, why they wanted to stop us from wearing the armbands. Our very wonderful attorney was an ACLU attorney named Dan Johnston. And he figured out that there was viewpoint discrimination going on because the school had allowed armbands for other, um, you know, opinions such as the death of school spirit. <laughs> and they had even allowed iron crosses representing Germany. And they had allowed, of course, Christian crosses on necklaces and things like that. And and so that also helped us to win. But uh, I think the school was just afraid of the whole issue of the Vietnam War. And a lot of adults think that, think wrongly that young people don't know what's going on and don't pay attention and aren't affected emotionally and in many other ways also by the events of the day. 
but we were very much affected by what was going on, and I think young people are today as well. So you went home. You, As you said, you'd taken off your armband. You still got suspended anyhow. How does this become a case? How does Dan Johnston find you and you become the name plaintiff in one of the most important school speech cases in American history? How did that transition happen? It was really uh, strange that such a small thing became such a big thing to me. But as I tell students, that is often how history is made because there were only, as I said, about <clears throat> there were only five students suspended. And the American Civil Liberties Union heard about what had happened, and the Des Moines Register was also very good at covering what was happening. And so the ACLU offered to uh, take our case. <clears throat> and Dan Johnston, our attorney, said that you have to go and try to um, you know, negotiate with the school board first, which we did. And two of the school board voted for us, but they were outvoted. And so the case proceeded on. We had another ACLU attorney also in the very beginning for a short time, but Dan Johnston became our main attorney. William Kunstler, who was also a, a very active attorney in history at that time, offered to take our case. Apparently, my mother told me that, but we decided to go with the ACLU. And so they you know, started – when the school board wouldn't uh, change their mind, wouldn't vote – in favor of us, it went to court, and they started the district level where we gave depositions and things. And, and of course, I thought we were going to lose because I thought no big important judge is going to say that kids have rights. So then we did lose, and it advanced to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals where um, it was eventually heard en banc, and we lost again. And, of course, I thought we're going to lose because, you know, these judges aren't going to vote for us. And so I was really happy and surprised when the Supreme Court even took the case, first of all. But I was going on with my, you know, average life. I was studying and going roller skating and doing the things that kids do. But in the meantime, we also went to St. Louis. It was the first time I flew in an airplane to go to the appeals court um, trial there so in St. You Louis. Sat through the district court. You sat through the appeals court. Were you at the Supreme Court when your case was argued? Yes, I went to the Supreme Court. And it's very interesting as far as, you know, how psychology works, because we had just moved to a new city, St. Louis, in November of my junior year, right before the case went to the Supreme Court, 1968, November. And so I was very preoccupied with, you know, sort of adolescent issues like who I was going to eat lunch with and whether I was going to have friends in algebra class and things like that. But then it was time to go to the Supreme Court. So I barely remember the Supreme Court arguments or, or really being there. I, I sort of vaguely remembered, I think, because my mind was really on these other issues now kids will ask me, you know, is there something that you regret or would you have done something differently? And I guess I, I would have been more aware of what was going on and realized that this is history in the making and, and tried to, you know, pay a little closer attention. Even in the end, um, on February 24th, 
which strangely enough is the same date as Marbury versus Madison, but a different year. Um, we won, and I was I really still didn't quite get how important this ruling was going to be or how important this case was going to be for for students all over the country for years to come and that it was going to be such an important precedent for student speech rights. So like you said, February 24th, 1969, you amazingly win this case that, as you said, you couldn't couldn't win uh, up until then. And Abe Fortas famously says, quote, it can hardly be argued that uh, neither students nor teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. And like you say, this becomes the seminal case for student speech. Was there blowback for you in your life uh, after you prevailed at the court? Yes, there was. And the other plaintiffs, my brother John and Chris Eckhart, also endured a certain amount of hate speech and threats. Um, someone threatened to bomb our house. This is more around the time when we wore the, wore the armbands, actually. But when we won the case, I have one letter saying that, uh, Tinkers, you haven't won anything except the scorn of good Americans. Your picture is enough to make me vomit. Nice. And I'll, I'll tell you, if you want to get the attention of middle school kids, that is one of my favorite letters to read them. Um, but people sent us other hate mail. Uh, swa- they sent us, uh, I'm sorry, the hammer and sickle. Uh, they sent, they threw red paint at our house. They broke a window of our car. They they loved to, to say that we were reds and that we were commies and that we should go back to Russia and China. My mom would always say, we're not communists, we're Methodists. <laughs> and, you know, they would send us letters saying, why don't you go back to Russia and China? And I would think, gosh, I was born in Burlington, Iowa. Um, so yeah, the haters. And that's another thing I I like to talk to students about today because, you know, the haters are out there in force right now. And there's so much of that going on. And so we're trying to, of course, always encourage kids, you know, not to bully. And we have all these anti-bullying programs, but it's a little hard sometimes when they don't see the role models among adults. Um, acting the way that we're, we're teaching the, the kids to act. I feel like you've said several times, and it's so interesting, that there was kind of layered over your anti-war feelings. There was a real awareness of the race problems that were happening uh, in the early 60s in the United States, too. Was that kind of a part of, I mean, I know you've said a, a lot of this mode of protest was borrowed from uh, you know, civil rights protests. But it sounds to me like it, both the feelings you had about the war and about what was going on in terms of civil rights were kind of conflated in this act of protest. Is that is that reasonable? Yes, the two issues were so linked. And actually, in the ruling in our case, when um, Abe Fortas wrote the ruling saying that neither students or teachers leave their rights at the schoolhouse gate— the ruling said that there are two things that students cannot do. One is to substantially disrupt school. And that part, they cited a case called Burnside, which goes directly back to Mississippi Freedom Summer, where some students wore buttons saying, one man, one vote, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. 
Those students in Philadelphia, Mississippi, wore the buttons that fall of 1964 to protest the murder of Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman. And they were suspended from school. And they won at the appeals level in Mississippi at the Fifth Circuit because the court said they had not substantially disrupted school. And so that's where the substantial disruption standard in our ruling in the Tinker case comes from. It comes directly from black students in Mississippi who were uh, activists in the civil rights movement. So there was so much, um, you know, overlap between between the issues. My last question, Mary Beth, is just this. This is ultimately a school case. It's different from a lot of the landmark free speech cases because kids don't have unfettered free speech rights at school, and they certainly have greater rights than they did before you and your brother came along. But I think it's fair to say that we are still, uh, you know, every day in thrall of school policies that say kids can't be disruptive, kids can't, you know, promote drug messages, kids can't do a lot of things that adults can do. And you said at the very beginning, you know, this is a kids' rights case in a way that uh, makes it different from the other speech cases. And I wonder if you feel as though we are living in a world today where kids understand the scope of the freedom that they were given by your case and also maybe understand the limits of the freedom that they have. In other words, this is a complicated thing that you did, uh, and I'm not sure that kids fully understand because I'm not sure grown-ups fully understand what the limits of speech are in schools. I know. Most kids, like most adults, don't understand the scope of the First Amendment and the wonderful power that they have when they know and use their First Amendment rights. But the good news is that there are so many young people all over the country who are using their First Amendment rights. And there are so many decisions made by adults that are bad for children. And that's why children really need their rights, children and teenagers, to speak up. But kids all over the country are speaking about all the issues of the day, and it's it's really heartening to see how they're using these First Amendment rights. And yet you've said, uh, I've read you saying that you worry that in addition to this regime of, you know, censorship in the schools, there's also a lot of what you, I think, would describe as self-censorship, where kids who are really, I think you're right, urgently concerned about some of these matters find themselves afraid to speak regardless of what their First Amendment rights might provide. Yeah, students are censoring themselves a lot in various ways. And as adults as well censor themselves so often and, you know, want to fit in, don't want to rock the boat. But as I tell the kids, when you join up with others who are speaking up and standing up about something that's important to you and something that can make a better world, it's a great way of life. And it makes life meaningful and interesting and even fun. And so I like to encourage them to not censor themselves, but instead to instead to take a stand about something that could could make things better for you and and for the your neighborhood, your school, your country, really for the whole world. Thank you, Mary Beth. This was a, a, a complete pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so good to be with you and celebrate the First Amendment and kids who are using it. Thank you. Hello, dear Amicus listener. Uh, because I like you, here's a little pro tip. 
If you join our membership program, Slate Plus, you can enjoy this and all of Slate's wonderful podcasts free of ads. And you'll be supporting our work at Slate at the same time. Win-win. A free trial can be found at slateplus.com slash amicus. And now back to the show. And so now I'm just delighted to welcome back to Amicus Professor Jeffrey Stone. He teaches law at the University of Chicago. Uh, He thinks about speech and speech codes and safe spaces, I think, pretty much all the time uh, and is a friend of this podcast. And so I thought maybe, Jeff, first of all, welcome back to Amicus. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And I thought to the extent that we are welcoming students back to school and we've just told them, here's Mary Beth Tinker, you can do whatever you want. Uh, Could you provide a kind of cautionary voice uh, in terms of what happened? I mean, Tinker really was the high watermark, right? It hasn't uh, continued to be the case uh, in the 70s, 80s, 90s and beyond uh, that students don't lose their rights to free speech at the schoolhouse gate, right? That was that was in some ways as good as it got. Yeah, Tinker was the landmark case in, in which the Supreme Court um, held that uh, students who wanted to wear armbands to school to protest the Vietnam War and were told they could not do so and when they went ahead and did it, were suspended, uh, that they could not constitutionally be uh, disciplined for doing that. Um, and that students have a First Amendment right uh, to speak um, inside school. They do not, as the court said, shed their uh, constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate um, unless the school could, deter- could demonstrate that the speech would su- uh, substantially and materially disrupt the operation of the school. And the court said that in the facts of Tinker, that uh, had not been demonstrated. Um, but as you say, Tinker was a high watermark and the Supreme Court has decided several cases in the years since then uh, in which it has uh, interpreted the decision more narrowly. Um, in one case, the Hazelwood case, uh, the court held that uh, a student newspaper um, could be uh, prohibited by the school principal um, from publishing information about um, divorce and about teen pregnancy uh, that might seemed to be an invasion of privacy because the school paper was actually, uh, in some sense, the voice of the school. Um, and in another case, uh, Morris versus Fed- Frederick, uh, the Supreme Court held that um, students could be um, uh, prohibited from displaying um, a banner that said bong hits for Jesus uh, at a school event uh, because it would be reasonably understood as promoting illegal um, activity, meaning illegal drug use. Um, and in another case called Bethel School District versus Fraser, um, the court held that a student who engaged in uh, sexual innuendo uh, in a speech in which he nominated another student for an elective office um, uh, could be punished for uh, the vulgarity of the speech. So those are all cases in which one could have imagined the Supreme Court coming out the other way. Uh, but in the years since Tinker, the half century since Tinker, uh, the court has uh, tended to be a bit more respectful or deferential, I guess, to the interests of uh, the school. Um, so that means it's a little bit more ambiguous in terms of uh, what regulations of speech are permissible. Um, and the other qualification that's important to note is that in Tinker, um, the case involved uh, the school officials restricting the ability of students to convey a particular message. 
Um, and under the First Amendment, there's generally a, a sharp difference between government efforts to restrict speech because the message itself is seen as problematic uh, and government efforts to restrict speech without regard to what uh, individuals are communicating. Um, and so Tinker doesn't necessarily govern circumstances in which the school has a general rule that says, for example, students have to attend class. And students who choose to to not attend class so they can engage in a speech activity um, would have less protection uh, because that would apply without regard to what message the students wish to communicate. And and that was the mechanism, as I understand it, when all the walkouts happened this spring, post-Parkland, when students across the country were walking out uh, to protest uh, gun right issues. Uh, a lot of the suspensions that were happening were just around the sort of content neutral, we don't have a problem with you protesting guns. Uh, we have a problem with you leaving school or leaving school without permission or not being in class, right? So as long as it's neutral, the school has an enormous uh, range of powers to discipline students, right? Yes. And, and frankly, you can understand why that makes sense. I mean, you don't really want uh, students to feel that whenever they want to engage in what they think to be speech activities, they can essentially miss class or miss school or, or, or whatever. Um, the school has an interest in having students be in class. And, and now that doesn't mean school should should or must discipline students. It just means that it wouldn't violate the First Amendment uh, for a public school to do so in those circumstances. So, so you're painting a rather grim uh, picture, and I guess it's a useful corrective to Mary Beth Tinker's get out there and protest kids. What you're saying is as long as the school defines a certain kind of protest as, quote, disruptive under Tinker, and as long as the school says, look, you know, we have these content neutral reasons that we uh, want our students to be sitting with their butts in their chairs during the school day. What does a student do, <laughs> Jeff, who wants to take to heart uh, Mary Beth Tinker's insistence that what we should be doing is protesting right now? And and I feel like you are a little bit the voice of gloom. Well, I think they could certainly do what Mary Beth Tinker did. Uh, that is, I think they could wear a T-shirt that, that is anti-gun. Uh, for example. And unless that created real havoc within the school, uh, they would have a First Amendment right to do that, just as Mary Beth Tinker had a right to wear um, the black armband. So I think that that part of Tinker remains very much in effect. Uh, the school cannot prohibit a particular message uh, because it might conceivably upset some other students without showing that it substantially and materially disrupts the school. So I think what Tinker did is something that students today could do in the same way. Um, the What students, I think, can't do, at least have a First Amendment right to do, um, is to miss school, for example, um, in a coordinated way, or to otherwise disrupt the ordinary functioning of the school and claim a First Amendment right. Um, now, that does not mean, for example, that when they have recess, uh, they could not have a demonstration uh, or before or after school, they could have a demonstration. Um, or during the lunch hour, perhaps, they could have a demonstration. But I think to the extent they um, are doing something which um, violates a, a reasonable content-neutral restriction, uh, they would be uh, they would not have a, a strong First Amendment claim. But they could certainly do exactly what Mary Beth Tinker did. 
And and can you just outline for us, because I think the law of the student T-shirt is kind of interesting. Um, and I think there have been also, I remember there was uh, a whole line of cases about uh, students wearing wristbands uh, that were for breast cancer awareness uh, that I think had the words, I heart boobies on the wristbands. Um, and all those cases, uh, how, how does it, if you want to do something that the school says, well, yes, it's a T-shirt or it's a wristband, but it's still running afoul of our line of, you know, whatever it is that the line is. What is a, what can you help us understand how the T-shirts and the wristband cases work themselves out? Well, what, what, um, a school would have to demonstrate uh, in those circumstances is that uh, wearing the wristband or wearing the T-shirt would uh, substantially and materially disrupt the ordinary operations of the school. And now that's a bit vague as a standard, and uh, lower courts have dealt with it in some instances. Uh, I believe in the wristband case involving the, the breast cancer, um, the courts held that they did have a right to do this. Um, but on the other hand, there are a number of cases involving uh, students wearing Confederate flag uh, emblems and T-shirts in which uh, courts have held that schools couldn't forbid this. Uh, that was in cases involving schools that were racially integrated, where there'd been a history of um, conflict and where the school officials felt that uh, this was so inflammatory, given the history and the circumstances of the school, that it would create serious distraction and disruption. Um, but I, I think that basically students who wish to do this um, should not be uh, afraid to do it. Uh, the, the burden would be on the school to say you can't do it and then to justify that uh, by showing that the wearing of the T-shirt or the wristband or whatever uh, did in fact substantially materially disrupt the school. And as I said, that's a little bit vague as a standard, uh, but unless something significant happens as a consequence of the, the, the wearing of those messages, I don't think the schools could constitutionally prohibit them. Now, you uh, have just mentioned a whole bunch of cases that never went past the courts of appeals. I think the last big school speech case we had at the Supreme Court was your bong hits for Jesus uh, example. Uh, do you have a theory on why the U.S. Supreme Court, which is so solicitous of speech rights, I feel like every one of the shows we've had this year is about, you know, cake baking is a speech issue and, you know, putting up signs in uh, clinics as a speech issue. There's nothing that can't uh, be weaponized into a First Amendment issue. And yet the Supreme Court, it doesn't seem to me as terribly interested in wading back into Tinker and clarifying some of the vagaries that you've laid out. Is is it is this a Supreme Court that is incredibly protective of speech rights but doesn't much care about students? Or do they feel that their work is done and that Tinker speaks for itself? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that they um, don't care about students. Um, I think uh, th their view would be that they don't see the lower court decisions uh, being particularly problematic given what they think the law should be. Um, so when it came to the Confederate flag cases, my guess is the justices thought that on the record presented at least that this was a reasonable lower court decision. Um, and I, you know, I don't doubt that they would take a case if they thought that the lower court had done something that, uh, substantially, uh, either overprotected free speech, um, or they thought substantially underprotected free speech. Uh, but 
at the moment, at least, I think they haven't seen cases or had cases presented to them uh, where they think that's the case. But I don't think they'd be shy of getting involved in this issue again uh, if the right case were presented. And, and could you imagine for me what that right case looked like if, say, I was an eighth grader uh, trying to figure out what might be an interesting way to push push the issue? Well, I mean, a simple example would be if students were wearing um, again, for example, anti-gun T-shirts and the school said, no, you can't do that um, because that might upset people. Um, then I think uh, lower courts would hold that unconstitutional. Um, but if a lower court upheld that, I think the Supreme Court would take it and would reverse in that situation. I don't see any reason to believe the court would overturn the decision in Tinker. I think in each of the three instances uh, where the court has has adopted a relatively narrow interpretation of Tinker, um, there were distinctions between those cases and the issue in Tinker or in the hypothetical I just posed. And I don't think this court would hold that a school could ban uh, a particular message uh, on a T-shirt unless it could show that there was a, a serious risk of disruption. Um, the interesting question would be, um, suppose that other students were angry and they wanted to shut down the wearing of the T-shirts uh, and therefore they became disruptive to, to prohibit the speakers. Um, this is the kind of issue that's arisen recently in colleges and universities um, where uh, speakers have been invited, for example, and opponents of those speakers have, have used disruption or even violence to try to silence the, the, or, or eliminate the speech. And that raises a very complicated question of what the court calls the heckler's veto, uh, where it's very skeptical of allowing opponents of a speaker um, to uh, – to, to enlist the government's efforts to censor the speaker. Um, and in the school situation, to the extent you had students who responded, say, to Mary Beth Tinker by uh, chanting in class or, or beating up people wearing the, the, um, uh, the, the signs, um, that would pose a really interesting question because that is materially and substantially disrupting the school, but it also poses a direct heckler's veto problem. And that would be really interesting and hard one, I think, for the court. But basically, my view is that if students want to wear these messages, anti-gun messages, for example, uh, a school district really can't ban them from doing so unless they are prepared to demonstrate that they would be a very material and substantial disruption. And um, that would be an interesting case for the court if, if they were to try to ban that. And and I want to – one thing that you said when you first opened and, and described Tinker, and I think we've left untouched, is you made the point that it depends where you are, uh, that a lot of these cases turn on where you are. And I, I want to raise the question for you. Some of the student protests that we saw last spring after Parkland, uh, the kids made a point of being outside of school or outside you know, the parking lot or uh, on the athletic field, uh, thinking that would immunize them uh, from from trouble. Uh, is that is that going to get you uh, very far? Uh, it depends on what rules the school has. So if the school has clear rules that provide that um, no um, p- political or protest activities um, can take place uh, on school grounds, period, uh, of that sort, and if that were deemed reasonable, um, then they could be punished for doing so. I'm skeptical that rules like that would be deemed reasonable, um, and I I don't know that any schools tend to have those rules. 
um, because it's not a problem for the most part that schools have dealt with. But um, on the other hand, you know, if they were regulating noise at a time when the noise would disrupt classes that are in session, I think that would be clearly upheld. But if the school were to say that that students cannot engage in uh, protest activities uh, on playgrounds uh, or uh, in the parking lot or whatever in ways that don't disrupt the school activities, I think that would be held to be unreasonable. So I want to give you a chance. We've been talking, I think, about elementary and high schools here. But I want to give you a chance because you've been right out on the hustings in the conversation around college speech and campus speech. Uh, And I know you and I have done panels about it. And uh, I know that even in the time, I think probably since you and I last spoke about it, uh, it has become more intractable and ugly. And I I wanted to give you a chance uh, to, to share your current thinking about what we do uh, when the Milos and the Richard Spencers uh, come to college campuses and people who I know you, uh, again, were, were deeply involved in uh, the speech codes at your school. Uh, what what does a, a school administrator do? What does a, a college administration do when somebody is coming to campus, students are saying they're being triggered, uh, students are saying, I'm not going to be able to control myself, violence will erupt, garbage cans will be lit on fire. Uh, and and what what is the way to think through this? And I, I love the way you think about it, this because you try to be as dispassionate as possible. And this is an issue that I know I myself have, um, particularly post Charlottesville, really struggled to be clear about. So I wonder if you can help us uh, understand what your guideposts are for the current fashionable activity of bringing the most provocative person possible uh, to a school and watching the entire campus melt down around it for three months. So colleges and universities, um, including private colleges and universities, uh, are and should be committed to the principle of academic freedom. And part of academic freedom is the right of students and faculty members uh, to invite speakers to campus subject to neutral rules um, in order to present points of view that they wish to hear, they wish other students and faculty members to hear. And part of what enables higher education uh, to succeed is the quest for truth and the understanding that the beliefs that we hold at any particular point in time uh, may not be the right beliefs as strongly as we hold them. And we've seen over time uh, how our society uh, has changed our views, whether it's on issues like slavery or on women's rights or gay rights or or civil rights, because we've had a robust opportunity to challenge the status quo and to challenge the accepted wisdom. And, and therefore, academic institutions, which are particularly devoted to the search for truth, I think have to be extraordinarily tolerant about... Um, the right of students and faculty to invite speakers to campus. Uh, and what that means is that uh, other students and faculty members um, uh, cannot appropriately uh, prevent those speakers from uh, having their say. Uh, they can appropriately object 
to the fact that the speakers were invited. They can appropriately uh, protest the views that are expressed by the speaker, but they cannot appropriately uh, take actions that attempt uh, physically or otherwise to prevent uh, speakers whose views they don't like um, uh, to be present on campus. And I think universities have an obligation um, to take all steps that are reasonably possible uh, to protect the right of students and faculty to invite speakers uh, and to enable those speakers to uh, have their say. And that um, those who disagree uh, should understand that the right response is to uh, explain why one disagrees, to argue the contrary, uh, to invite other speakers who will present the opposing points of view, uh, but not to attempt uh, censorship. And I think part of the reason why that's so important, uh, particularly today, is that most of those who are seeking to censor speakers are really members of various minority groups. And um, the practical reality is that censorship is generally a tool for the majority. And uh, if minorities legitimate censorship, uh, they are opening the door to others to censor them down the road. And in a world, quite honestly, of Donald Trump, um, I don't think that we want to, to dignify censorship as a legitimate strategy of people in positions of authority. So I, I think universities have an obligation to educate their students about the importance of free expression and the importance of academic freedom, um, to teach them how to be effective uh, disagreeers. Uh, and, and, and this is important not only because of the mission of a university, but also because part of the role of a university is to prepare our students to be effective citizens in the real world. And the real world will not protect citizens from exposure to views they don't like. And therefore, for, for our students to go on into the real world and to be effective, they have to learn how to respond to ideas they don't like um, and not to run away from them or not to try to silence them. Uh, so this is a central issue, I think, in universities and colleges today. Um, but I think we're making progress on this front. And I'm reasonably optimistic that, that as we move forward, uh, colleges and universities will find good ways to address these issues. And, and, and am I right in saying that just around this time last year when um, Richard Spencer tried to get you to invite him <laughs> to Chicago uh, to construct a platform for him, you took the position, I think, that is reflected in what you just said, which is he has a right to speak. And no, I will not invite him to Chicago because he doesn't have ideas that I need to hear. Is that is that your own personal way of navigating this very thorny question? Uh, yeah, I don't have any particular obligation to invite every Tom, Dick, and Harry who wants to speak uh, to campus. And uh, on the other hand, if there are students or faculty who would like to hear that speaker, I would defend uh, absolutely their right to invite them. But uh, I have no obligation to invite anybody just because they want to come to campus. Um, and that's what I explained to, to Spencer. But I also told him that I would defend absolutely uh, the right, not his right, but the right of our students and faculty to invite him if they wish to, to come to the campus to speak. And and one last question on this. I, I think I know the answer. But when students, when Richard Spencer goes down to Florida at post Charlottesville and the students just shout him off the stage, uh, don't let him finish a sentence, is that speech answering speech? Or do you class that under your, no, this is uh, students who are not uh, 
respectfully listening or disrespectfully at least listening to opposing views. In other words, uh, I know you think the fix is not uh, to um, entirely cater to student sensibilities, even, you know, uh, students who feel really uh, pained and aggrieved by speech. But is shouting them down the right answer? No, I mean, it's clearly not the right answer. Um, and uh, again, all one has to do is to imagine the roles being reversed. Um, if you had people shouting down and preventing civil rights marches, uh, and the Supreme Court said that the, the, that the government has a constitutional obligation to prevent uh, that from happening and to protect the rights of civil rights marchers, or if you had people uh, uh, um, shouting down uh, people who believe in Roe v. Wade or shouting down people who believe in the rights of transgender uh, individuals. Um, the same students who are now shouting down would say, you can't do that. Uh, you can't prevent these people from expressing their views. Uh, so this is a neutral principle that basically says that you can engage in disagreement, you can engage in protest, but not in a way that prevents the speaker from having their say. And uh, I think this is an absolutely central precept of both the First Amendment, as the Supreme Court has clearly recognized, and also as a matter of academic freedom uh, for colleges and universities. Um, if you invite this, then you open the door to all students and faculty who disagree with speakers to shut down all the speakers they don't like. It's a two-way street, not a one-way street, and it's not a place we want to go. And what 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 happens when I say to you that your detractors uh, say, but it's not a neutral principle, Jeffrey Stone, because by definition, people who are powerful, people who have very, very wealthy backers who will fly them around and bring them to campus, uh, people who have uh, centuries of entrenched rights and freedoms are always inherently going to be more powerful in these conflicts. What's the answer? It's ironic to make that argument in the in the context of higher education, because the vast majority of colleges and universities um, are far more liberal than our society generally, and the vast majority of students and faculty members in most colleges and universities are, are completely sympathetic to the views of the opponents of these particular speakers, the Milo Yiannopoulos and the Richard Spencers and the Ann Coulters and so on. Um, so the irony is that in this, in this particular environment, um, these students who want to shut down the speakers are not really the minority. Um, and, uh, that's, that's an example, in fact, of, in this environment of the majority shutting down the minority. Uh, the truth is very conservative students in most colleges and universities are in fact the minority. And, um, and, and, and so this is kind of backwards. And, and I think that students in these circumstances should understand that uh, those students who are uh, very conservative should have the right to have their say. And the fact that we may disagree with their views is not a justification for shutting them down. Uh, and I, I just think that, that um, the principle that's at stake here is a fundamental principle that ultimately uh, serves the interests of the very students uh, who today want to silence speakers because it's their speech in the world at large that's much more likely to get silenced, in part for exactly the reasons you just suggested, uh, if we allow that kind of behavior to occur. To occur. Before I let you go, Jeff, uh, a whole bunch of students are listening to you right now and they're trying to figure out, what do I do? How do I 
get into this line? How do I find a voice? How do I speak up and and let it matter, particularly uh, if I'm in school and I'm feeling uh, that I have things to say and I'm not sure what to say? Did you um, have any thoughts post-Parkland about what high schoolers can and should be doing in the present time to help the rest of us get our heads on straight? Well, first of all, I have to say I I am uh, unbelievably admiring of the courage and the um, and the determination of uh, students on this issue uh, post Parkland, and um, I hope that our students uh, and and that this generation will be the leader uh, of where we go in the future. Um, And I think students should be uh, determined to engage in. Uh, effective expression about their views, whether on this issue or others. Uh, that's part of what's necessary in a democracy. Um, and democracy dies when citizens do not participate uh, and when they uh, fail to express their views effectively and powerfully. Um, and therefore, I would encourage them to speak out and to be assertive. Uh, at the same time, I think they have to recognize that schools have a legitimate interest in having a degree of order and, um, and that to the extent schools are acting in a fair and principled and consistent manner to avoid disruption and interference with the school activities, that that's legitimate. Um, but there are plenty of ways in which students can effectively uh, present their views, both um, during and after and outside of the school context. And I think that they they need to do that, and I admire them greatly for doing that. Jeffrey Stone is the Edward H. Levi Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago. He is the author of too many constitutional law books to name, but the most recent one is Sex and the Constitution, Sex, Religion, and Law from America's Origins to the 21st Century. It was published last year. Uh, He's also written multiple amicus briefs at the Supreme Court and is one of my go-to guys about speech in general. Jeff, thank you so very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Dolly. Anytime. I think what you do is just amazing. Thank you. That is all the free speech you're going to be getting from this edition of Amicus, a.k.a. the Activist Student Back to School Handbook. Get out your T-shirts and take a photo and put it up on our Facebook page. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in touch, our email is, as ever, amicusslate.com. And you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicuspodcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we will be back with you with another episode of Amicus in two weeks. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.